Okay, this morning we're going to continue with my series on prayer. This will be the last message on prayer. We'll go on to other things, but uh, I've entitled the message this morning, God-Centered Prayer. God-Centered Prayer. That may seem like an obvious thing, but we'll tell you why it's important in just a minute. In our last, by the way, let's turn uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 6, if you would. Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles. And before we get started, we'll go ahead and read the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure it's familiar enough, but we'll read it from the, from the text. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, if you can get there. Matthew 6 and verse 9. And we'll read through this familiar portion of Scripture. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In our last study on prayer, we noted several pastors and theologians who asserted that prayer is fundamentally an act of worship. It's not just something we do kind of on the side. It is an act of worship. In fact, if you remember, John MacArthur stated that prayer includes praise, includes petition, penitence, and a plea for grace in our sanctification. All those are elements of worship when you think about it. Our authentic worship includes those things. It includes praise, includes petition, uh, penitence, asking for forgiveness, and then asking for grace to grow in wisdom and knowledge of him. Joel Beakey <clears throat> in his book, Taking Hold of God, which is about prayer, obviously, points out that John Calvin, in the final edition of his Institutes, defines prayer as a communion of men with God, by which, having entered the heavenly sanctuary, they appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience that what they believed was not in vain. In other words, we, we see the promises of God, we believe they're not in vain, right? They're, they're not lies, they're not you know, things we should question. No, they're God's word. So when God commands us to do things uh, and gives us promises in this word, we should be able to come before him with this sense of we are communing with God, we're trusting him in what his promises are, and we're having comfort from that and encouragement from that. In fact, we, like Calvin, should really consider prayer, as Beeky points out in his book, as holy and familiar conversation with God, our Heavenly Father, reverently speaking, it is a family conversation which the believer confides in God as a child confides in his father. And I'm sure, obviously, not earth, all earthly fathers are good, but if you've had a good earthly father, you can picture when you were a young child, you'd go to your father and you'd want to talk with him. You'd want to share things with him. You'd want to ask for help or for guidance, or you just wanted to be with him. Okay? That's the kind of attitude we should have towards God, our Heavenly Father. We should look to him as our father, and we should be able to go to him with our concerns and just want to talk with him, commune with him. Okay? So it shouldn't, in other words, we shouldn't be afraid or, you know, afraid to commune with our Heavenly Father. We should not think of it as a, a fearful thing or as something we can't do. No, we should be able to do it because he is our Father. We love him. He loves us. And that should give us a comfort in coming to him. So it should be a natural thing for believers, I guess you can put it that way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Beakey made this comment in his book concerning Calvin's writings on prayer. He said, quote, Prayer calls down the Father's tender mercy and care for his children because having prayed, we have a sense of peace that God knows all and that he has both the will and the power 
to take care of us. We, we have that sense that he, we know he's in control. And we've talked about that, obviously, here for months on the sovereignty of God and his dominion over all things, his providence. And that should give us a sense of confidence when we come to him. That we're not going to bring something to him and he goes, well, what am I going to do about that? You know, he knows he's in control. We should have comfort that he is our father and we can bring these to, to him. So we have to kind of strike a balance in prayer. Um, we'd, we should approach him with adoration right, with respect, yet depending on his condescension towards us, his servants, whom he loved and whom he chose to save. So there's a balance there. We, we respectfully come before him. We adore him as the creator, as the God of all the universe. And yet we can come him knowing that he condescends. He looks down upon us. He loves us with an everlasting love. We are his servants. He chose to save us. So there's a balance there. Alistair Begg, in his book on um, prayer called Pray Big, says, we come confidently, but we do not come complacently. We come to a loving father, but we do not come as his equal. And you see the balance there? We come to him as a loving father, one who cares for us, but we don't come as his equal. In other words, we don't tell him what to do. We don't act as though we know better than he does. There's a balance there we have to keep attention. So this morning, <clears throat> we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer that we just read, as found here in Matthew chapter 6, through the lens of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Okay, this book actually is a, more of a study guide on it, and I'll be going through that. Um, and we'll look at the last nine questions, which in the Catechism basically dissect what this prayer means. And that'll help us uh, to see what true, that true prayer is God-centered. Uh, indeed, as we mentioned last time, the Lord's Prayer begins with God, and as we see in our text, it ends with God. And unfortunately, as we all know, even as believers, our natural impulse is to put ourselves first uh, and call upon our Father with our desires in mind, not his glory in mind. That, and that's the, the key we have to think about. When we come before him, we shouldn't be thinking about what can we get from him or how can he fix things. We should come first of all with the desire to glorify him and to worship him and to acknowledge that he is in control. Okay, that's the balance we should have. Now, of course, there are times when brief Fervent prayers for help are okay. It's not like we, we have to have a lengthy one. In fact, we know Peter's cry for help there. When he was on the, on the lake and he began to sink, he didn't go to a long dissertation. He just said, Lord, help me. I'm drowning. Okay? And the thief on the cross, did he go into a lengthy prayer? No, he just said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So short prayers are okay. We don't have to have a long dissertation in prayer. But when we talk about the Lord's Prayer here, obviously this is an example for us to have a, a standard, you might say, or a pattern of prayer. Lord's Prayer is meant for those occasions when we come to a season of prayer, when we want to seek him extensively. And we need to first consider whom we're praying to when we do that. And we'll see that as we go through this. As we mentioned last time, underlying our prayer should be these very important things. It should be a reverence for God, a submission to God, a sincere dependence upon God, which should lead us to a contentment with the will of God. Let me read those again just to get, make sure you get that. These are things we should keep in mind as we approach them. Our prayer should be a reverence towards God, submission to God, a sincere dependence upon God, which should lead us to contentment with God and with his will. Spurgeon made this clear when he said, No believer ever complains who is frequently in prayer. Why is that so? Why would you say that? Well, it's because someone who spends much time in prayer 
with his heavenly Father, should learn to trust and be content in the Father's will. If you're communing with him, spending time with him, you know, worshiping him, then that should lead you into a contentment, a, a sense of peace and assurance that he is in control of all things. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson uh, put it this way, and I really like this. I'm going to read it once through, and then I'll read it again, just because it really kind of sums up our life as a Christian being content in God's will, having a sense of confidence in God's will. And he said this. He said, Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints, at the time he chooses, with the provision he is pleased to make. Think about that for a minute. Christian contentment, what should it be? Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition in our life than to belong to the Lord, to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints, at the time he chooses, with the provision he is pleased to make. How do you get to that point? Spending a lot of time in prayer, seeking your Father's face, communing with him, submitting to him. That's the key. So you'll find that in your 1689 confession, which we all should have, I assume you all have, I hope you have it with you, that we should have, should have a, it includes a catechism, which is in the back, same questions and answers that are in the Westminster, okay? Same ones. Um, they're just in a little different numbering system, okay? Uh, one, except this London Baptist Confession has one additional question and answer. It's kind of an introduction uh, to prayer, and you'll see that in the back. It's called, What is Prayer?, uh, so if you have your 1689 with you, and if you don't, that's fine. You'll, I'll be reading uh, the questions and answers. But if you have it, you can turn it back to question 105 in the back, okay? 105, and it says, what is prayer? So let me read that question and answer from this book, and then we'll get into the discussion of the actual prayer and how we're going to break it down, okay? Question number 105. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up our desire is an offering up our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ believing with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies okay that's the what is that's what prayer is let me read it again what is prayer prayer is an offering up of our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ believing with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgments of his mercy. And you'll see as we go through these uh, in your book, if you have it, if you don't, it, each one uh, has a question and answer that has verses, supporting verses that kind of build up that, uh, that lesson that's being brought here. So in this particular case, uh, Psalm 62 and verse 8 says this, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. That's Psalm 62, verse 8. Also, we know, of course, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, that refers to the Holy Spirit making intercession for us. It should be a familiar passage if you're familiar with Romans chapter 8. It says that the Holy Spirit makes intercession uh, for, the, and we'll see that in verse 27, for the, for the will of God, according to the will of God. So Romans 8, 28 is one. And then also 1 John 5, 14 and Romans 8.27 use that same phrase, 
that our prayers are, should be according to the will of God. And that's the important principle in prayer is that we're praying not according to our will, but we're praying according to the will of God. That obviously we want his will to be done more than ours. And as these other verses, as you'll see there in your, in your uh, confession, uh, we attest that we pray not according to our merits, not according to our merits, but at the, in the name and based upon the merits of Christ on our behalf. That's very important when we come before God. We don't come um, with the idea that we deserve it or, you know, this is our, no, it's based on Christ's merits. We do it in faith. We do it with a repentant heart. And we believe that he will answer and we give him thanks when he does. That's pretty much summing it up, isn't it? We do it with a, a humble heart, a repentant heart. And we believe he'll answer and we give him thanks when he does that. But let's move on. In the, in the questions and answers here, and we'll look at the first two questions and answers. I've kind of made some subtitles here as we go through them. We'll do two at a time just to make it go a little quicker. And the first two we'll look at is the first two questions after that one in the, uh, in the 1689 Confession. Um, and then I've called them the rule and the reason, the rule and the reason. So that's number 106 and 107 in your uh, 1689 Confessions. The numbering's difference, but the wording is the same. They do have some different verses for support. Most of them are all the same, but they have just different ones. So we won't cover all of those. You can read them in your confession when you get a chance and look them up. I would recommend you do that. We'll touch on a few of them as we go through. So the first, let's begin by reading the first question and the first answer, okay? What rule have God given for our direction in prayer? The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer, but the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. As I've stated, I think, the last two times that I've taught here on prayer, the whole of Scripture, really the whole of Scripture, is our template to direct us how to approach our glorious, holy, and merciful God in prayer. All of Scripture is an example. Uh, in fact, in particular, we noted that there are some marvelous prayers that are set forth for us and recorded in God's Word, like in the Psalms, among the prophets, and there's even some in the New Testament with Paul, and, and uh, we can look at those and we can say, well, those are really, you know, speak to my heart, and you can use those words in a similar way to pray and seek uh, after God. But this particular one, of course, is what we call a model. In fact, as we mentioned uh, back there, 1 John 5, 14, it's a, it's a, that's a proof text that as we pray, we should always keep in mind that we're praying according to God's will. Okay, that's, that's if you want your prayer answered, pray according to God's will. However, as the answer states here that we just read, the Lord gave us this format, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, he gave it to his disciples and to all believers that we should use when we approach God in prayer. And as I believe I mentioned last time, the Westminster Confession's uh, notes, his catechism notes here say, says this, true prayer, like true religion itself, is God-centered. Just as the chief end of man in all of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that's the first catechism question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Just as that is true, so in prayer, it is God who comes first and only then our own interests. So there's an order here of approaching God, a proper order. And we noted last time that Luther's guide to his barber, you remember that? The, he guided, I think the uh, Brysons have the book right now, but uh, Luther's guide to his barber and how to pray, he said, use the Lord's Prayer, use the Apostles' Creed, and use the Ten Commandments as models for your prayer. Because why? They all begin with the worship of God. Okay, if you look at them, that's, they all begin 
Our Father who art in heaven, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Uh, I, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. It all begins with him, if you look at those three and use them as samples of prayer. In addition to beginning with God, the Lord's Prayer goes on to speak of his kingdom before there's any mention of our needs. You'll notice that. It begins all about him and his kingdom. Then it comes to our needs. Even true believers can fall into that me first pattern, okay? And which tells us that the model of prayer is kind of contrary to our fallen natures, that we tend to think of ourselves first, even though we are redeemed, even though we are God's people, we tend to fall back into that me first attitude. You know, I want my, my answers first of all. So it's something we have to guard against. It tells us that prayer is not an easy, simple thing. It can be, obviously, if we're walking with the Lord, but also it can be difficult because the flesh gets in the way. And Satan sure isn't going to make it easy for us. He'll throw all kinds of distractions at us. But let's not just blame everything on Satan. We have to think of ourselves. You know, how often do we begin a prayer and you know, two minutes into it we're thinking of what well, we're going to eat dinner tonight or where we're going to go tomorrow or how many customers am I going to get called from tomorrow? You know, all, all those things tend to assault our mind. So it's important that we see that prayer is very important, but it's not going to be a simple, oh, yeah, I can do this. It's going to be a battle with the flesh and with Satan. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 14, 38, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay? We may be willing to pray, but our flesh is certainly weak. We're not sanctified totally yet. So to be honest, prayer takes effort, faithful, intelligent, determined, spirit-led effort. Okay? Faithful, determined, intelligent, spirit-led effort. Yet... Let's be comfortable with the fact that this model prayer shows that prayer can be simple, okay? There's nothing here of high-sounding rhetoric or impressive-sounding phraseology, you know, that you have to be eloquent in your prayers. Uh, You have to quote 15 scriptures, you know, in your prayers. It's not lengthy, but brief in both the statement of each petition and as a whole. When you read it, we just read it. It took less than a minute, probably, to read the Lord's Prayer. There's no virtue in lengthy prayers, but rather the content is what is important. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 7, just there before we read those verses, Jesus warns that we should not pray as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. That doesn't mean that long, godly, humble prayers can't be heard, okay? But that their value is the same as short prayers when they're offered in faith. Whether you offer a short prayer or a long prayer, the values are saying when you're trusting God, you're coming to him in faith, okay? And if you feel led to pray long because of things that are on your heart, many things you're concerned about, and you want to spend time in worshiping him, that's okay. But if your, your immediate need is a situation where you just want to get before God and say, I'm, help me, you know, like Peter, help, that's okay too. There's no set length of time, in other words. The Lord's prayer is not lengthy, but as the Westminster Catechism notes, it is comprehensive, I like the way they put this. He said, instead of covering a little with much speaking, it covers much with little speaking. Let me read that again. Instead of covering a little with much speaking, it covers much with little speaking. It's not a performance, but as someone once said, true prayer is a thing of the heart. Okay, it's of the heart. So let's read, let's go on. We're going to do this kind of quickly as we go through them. Let's read the second question and answer. You can follow along in yours or just listen as I read this one. The second question and answer in the the book here is, what does the preface 
of the Lord's Prayer teach us? Answer, the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father. There's that point again. Able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. Let me read that again. The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father, which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. So note that it is called the preface to the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure as you know, a preface is an introduction to a discourse or a preliminary remarks in a speech. In a book, it's a, you know, just kind of a summary, you might say. Um, it kind of gives you an idea of where you're going. And as I stated last time, we must, we must approach God with respect and humility. We're not on an equal plane with him. Okay? We need to keep that in our minds. Um, the preface, Our Father which art in heaven, speaks really clearly of the necessity of having a right relationship with God. Because you can't call him Father unless you have been adopted into his family via the reconciling of yourself to him, to your, of you to himself through the redemptive work of his Son. You know, the popular but false teaching of the universal fatherhood of God, that all people are God's children, leads to the thought that people of all religions can pray together or even repeat the Lord's Prayer mechanically. And God must hear and must answer because they're using the Lord's Prayer. That doesn't work, okay? And you and I might have relatives who are very religious and that regularly use this prayer in their homes or at funerals or other occasions. And they think that because they're using it, that God's pleased to hear them. But that's a lie. Only when we have repented of our sins and trusted in Christ as our Savior for our salvation can we really with meaning pray this prayer, honestly. And though we ever be so pious and faithful to our religion, whatever it may be, we cannot reach God through any other intermediary than Christ. Jesus made that very clear in that very familiar passage, John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And though most of us probably know that by heart, right? We all know that verse by heart. We've heard it for years. How often do we approach God in prayer without even thinking of that truth and instead ask God for something as though he owes it to us or that we deserve it? No, you can't come before him unless you're coming in the name of Christ and based on the merits of Christ. So we need to keep that perspective in mind. He is a loving father. We are his children. But we have to respect him because he is the God of all creation. We need to be careful that we don't try to bring God down to our level, but recognize that he is in heaven and he's glorious and holy beyond our imagination. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 18, Isaiah begins in, in, in this, with this thought, To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him to? God answers that and repeats his thought in verses 25 and 26 of Isaiah 40, when God says, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom will I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, referring to the heavens and the stars. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. And we look up at the sky and we see the stars, 
if we take the natural humanistic point of view, we think, wow, isn't that great? Well, all those stars up there, amazing. God calls them all by name. We know the name of a few of them, or at least we've named a few of them based on our own personal uh, desires that scientists have over the years. But God knows them all by name. Millions, billions, beyond count stars. He knows them all by name. He put them there. There's none star, no star up there in the sky that he didn't put there and that he didn't name. He placed it in the sky. That's amazing when you think about it. It's, it's beyond our comprehension. When you look up at the night sky and see the thousands of, of stars that we can see with the naked eye, God named them all. He placed them all. He knows where their orbits are. And that's something we should bring us to a sense of awe and wonder. I like how the Westminster Catechism uh, study notes here summarize this preface, we'll call it. Okay, preface to the Lord's Prayer. God is, in other words, both near and far. He is close to us and yet exceedingly high above us. He is our Father, but he is also in heaven. So, while we come to him directly, we do need to take off our shoes, as it were, and stand in awe of him. Remember the picture as God met Moses there on the mountain? He said, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. That's kind of the attitude we should have as we approach God. We approach him as a loving father, but we approach him with the utmost respect and awe that we are unworthy for him to even look upon us, let alone to love us and hear our prayers. What a blessing that we can approach him, but we must do it with reverence and humility. And we not only can do this individually, but we can pray together. Corporately is an important part of prayer as well, which we try to do here. In James chapter 5 and verse 16, we're told to pray for one another. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul exhorts that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. We do that when we have our pastoral prayer, and as well as the prayers that we offer after the psalm in the morning. So prayer is not just for us, it is for everyone that's a brother and sister in Christ. We pray for each other. We lift up the, the body of Christ, and we can pray corporately as a body of believers. Let's move on uh, to what we'll call the, the glory and the kingdom. The glory and the kingdom, which is the first and second petition here in the book. The glory and the kingdom. In the Westminster Catechism and in the 1699, the Lord's Prayer is breaking down into petitions to better understand each part. So let's look at uh, the, the first question and answer regarding uh, the first petition. And it reads as this, what do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, we can see how they're breaking this down into just you know, segments of the prayer, which is, hallowed be thy name. We pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. Let me read that again. What do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known and that he would dispose of all things to his own glory. There are not enough superlatives, beloved. There's not enough adjectives to describe our God. Really, there isn't. I mean, you know, when you think about it, describe how excellent his name is. Let me read you uh, two of the scripture references that are probably referenced in the 1689 Catechism as well as in this one uh, that support this particular uh, petition. 
First, uh, Psalm 67 and verses 1 through 3. In fact, I'm going to turn back there and read that. Psalm 67, verses 1 through 3. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, upon us, that your way may be known on earth and your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. I would recommend you go on and read the rest of that psalm, which isn't very long. But the picture there, of course, is a cry for mercy and a, and a desire to glorify and praise our God. We also have a reference there to Romans 11.36, which is pretty succinct and straight to the point. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You know, a wise study of the Bible will find that names are not mere labels, but as in the case of Abraham becoming Abram and Jacob becoming Israel, they are a description that tells us something concerning the person to whom it is given. God distinctly gave them those names, and we can look, of course, in Scripture to find out what the meaning was. The Catechism uses the phrase here, whereby he, God, maketh himself known, as being equivalent to his name. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now, you probably noticed as you've read the scriptures that God has many names in the Bible. He goes by many names, at least he gives himself very many names. And interestingly, in Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family of heaven and earth is named by God. He is the creator is named after him. And God is, as Herman Bavinck once said, and this is an interesting kind of summary of, of, of not all the names, but many of the names in the Bible, God is a sun and a light, a fountain and a spring, a rock and a shelter, a sword and a buckler, a lion and an eagle, a hero and a shepherd, a man and a father. That's quite a list, and that's not all of them. But that's how God describes himself in Scripture. The Westminster Catechism states, And it is only as we learn to understand the whole revelation that God has given us in nature and in Scripture that we understand his name. Because all those titles kind of describe him in some way, as what he means to us. So it's important when you go through the Scriptures and you see God referring, or either David, for instance, in the psalm or another passage, speak of God as a particular object like a rock, you know, or, or, or a... Uh, a lion, or a shepherd. Those are names that help describe to us who God is and how he relates to us. So what is, exactly does it mean to hollow God's name? Well, not only should we think of God's name as revealed to us in creation, but we should also recognize that we, as he does, should always seek to honor his name. In John 12, 28, Jesus said, Father, glorify thy name. And what did the Father reply? I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So, when praying this particular petition, we're not telling God to do something that he's not already doing. But our desire, above all, should be that God honor and glorify his name in answering our prayers. Okay, that's what we want him to do when he answered. We want him to glorify himself, not us. Okay? In Genesis chapter 18, in verses 23 through 32, Abraham pleads for the city of Sodom and, of course, for his nephew, Lot. Okay? And he pleads that God would spare it for the sake of a few righteous. And his argument 
is the conviction that God won't do anything or cannot do anything unjust, for that would dishonor his name. Okay? God wouldn't do anything to dishonor his name. So what does Abram say? He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? In Genesis 18.25. And you see what's important about that? We pray for, for instance, a great revival or a great awakening here in the church. But we don't often remember to pray for a reformation or repentance of the things in the church that dishonor God's name. If we want a revival, we want an awakening, then we need to pray and recognize and repent of those things that are not honoring his name, that he might bless the church. As the title of this message states, we should be God-centered, not self-centered, which means we need to ask God to give us the grace to hollow his great name, to honor his great name. The Apostle Paul sums it up, I think, really well in 1 Corinthians 31. He says, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. In fact, that is a quote. Paul's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9 in verses 23 through 24. But we see the connection between the Old and New Testament. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let me read you a quote from David Brainerd uh, from this Westminster detailed here. It's a wonderful quote. And really speaks to us as far as the importance of prayer. David Brainerd, of course, was a missionary to the American Indians back in the 1700s in our early church history. And he said this, My heaven is to please God and to glorify him and to give all to him and to be wholly devoted to his glory. That is the heaven I long for. That is my religion. And that is my happiness. And always was, I suppose, ever since I had any true religion. And all those that are of that religion shall meet me in heaven. I do not go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. So we need to ask ourselves a question, I guess, following his words. My heaven is to please God. Is that true? And to glorify him and to give all to him and be totally devoted to his glory. That is the heaven I long for. We need to ask that. Is that our heaven that we long for? It involves bringing total glory and honor to him. May that be true in our lives. Psalm 68 and verse 1 says, Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee from before him. These are some of the verses that uh, will back up the second, uh, second question. Let me read that second question now. I kind of got ahead of myself, but <clears throat> excuse me. Second petition and question and answer, I'm sorry. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Okay, let me read it again. What we pray for in the second petition, the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. That was that verse I read, let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Psalm 68, 1, let those also who hate him flee from before him. Also in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, John says this, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Now that text can be taken several ways. Some would say it's a picture of Satan's defeat at the cross and the resurrection of Christ. But 
So what does it mean to pray thy kingdom come? Well, first we need to understand that we're speaking of a spiritual kingdom in this situation. Let thy kingdom come. Because as the Bible teaches, God is already sovereign over everything. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar found that out the hard way, didn't he? God rules on earth. There's nothing that's going to overcome him. The Catechism states in its notes that when we say, Thy kingdom come, then we're not praying that God would get hold of things. He already has a hold of everything. What we're praying for is that what we sometimes call the kingdom of grace. We pray that the Spirit of God will work in the hearts of men to enable them to will and to do what is pleasing to God. Now, we know that all men, yea, all of creation, is ruled by God's absolute sovereignty. But only some, God's elect, are ruled inwardly by the Spirit of God. That is what we mean by God's spiritual kingdom. We know as the Jews, for instance, looked for, incorrectly, looked for a political kingdom over which their Messiah would reign. But Jesus clearly told them, and he told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. Also, in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo, here, or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So, when we pray that his kingdom to come, we're praying for the spiritual defeat of the enemy of God's kingdom, the advancement of God's kingdom in the hearts of all the elect, and ultimately in the consummation of God's kingdom when Christ comes for his own. We should be confident that the kingdom of God is in the process of coming now, being fulfilled now. Although we aren't able to see it clearly as we would like, but as Paul so boldly declares at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We may not see that in our lifetime, beloved, but God's kingdom cannot be diminished, nor can it be defeated. We can still pray that God would hasten the fulfillment of his kingdom for his glory. And one day, these words from the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 will be true. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. If you ever sang the Messiah, you know that line. Okay? Let's move on there now to the third and fourth petition. Okay? Third and fourth petition, um, <clears throat> which we'll call His Will and Our Needs. His Will and Our Needs. As soon as I can get there. Third petition. What do we pray in the third petition? In the third petition, which is, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God by his grace would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. Let me read that again. What do we pray in the third petition? In the third petition, which is, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, we pray that God by his grace would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. Uh, Calvin once said, the important part of God's kingdom lies, the most important part of God's kingdom lies in his will being done. Thus, we read this petition, thy will be done. Here's some scripture passages that support this petition uh, taken from both of these 
studies. Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Job saw very clearly what had to be done. Job 1.21. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Psalm 103 and verse 20. The psalmist said, Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments. That's what the angels are doing. They're not up there questioning God, arguing with God, wondering, is this right? No. They obey God. They know his will. They hearken to the voice of his word, and they do his commandments. Now, as we've been studying on the will of God here in CLA over the past months, really, or the last few weeks, expressly, as expressed in the 1689 Confession under Chapter 3 of God's Decree and after Chapter 4 of Divine Providence, these things should be pretty clear to us, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. However, as the answer shows here in this question and answer, we need God's grace to make us able, willing to know, and obey and submit to his will. Obviously, it's not an automatic thing because our flesh, again, is resisting. So we need his grace to make us able, willing to know his will, and to obey and submit to his will. So if we were to ask what precisely is meant by the will of God, well, we could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29. We could read this. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed unto us and our children forever, that we should do all the words of this law. So there is a secret will of God, which is often called his decretive will, and that is essentially his divine providence. We cannot know what it is ahead of time. We can see it play out in the events of history because there's nothing that plays out in the events of history that he didn't ordain to take place. There's also the revealed will of God, of course, and we know that God has given us his complete revelation of his will here in the word as well as in his creation, but in his word particularly. Thus, if we pray, thy will be done, we're not only praying for God to be glorified in the fulfillment of his decretive will, which of course he will, but that he would enable us to know and obey his revealed will. So obviously, in order for us to submit to his revealed will, we must be willing students of the word and to be obedient to that word. As the ever-changing circumstances of our lives, we should be looked to be directed by the decree, which is directed by the decretive will of God, take place. We should still be looking for obedience to his word. Okay? Even though the circumstances of our life are changing, some are more difficult than others, that shouldn't deter us from looking to the word of God and saying, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Okay? We keep that perspective in mind. To quote from um, Westminster Catechism here, commentary, by the gracious work and power of the Holy Spirit, we are to think out the meaning and implication of God's revealed will in order that we might know what is good, and acceptable and perfect. That's a quote from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if we do that, we would be like the angels, as proclaimed, as we just read in Psalm 103, verse 20, who hearken unto the voice of his word and do his commandments. So let's read the fourth petition as we're moving along here. Fourth petition. I should have all these marked better, but there we go. Fourth petition. What do we pray in the fourth petition? In the fourth petition, which is, give us this day our daily bread, we pray that of God's free gift we may receive a competent portion of the good things of his life and enjoy his blessings with them. Let me read it again. 
in the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread, we pray that of God's free gift, we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and enjoy his blessings with them. Here's some supporting verses. Proverbs 30, verse 8, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Also, 1 Timothy 6, 8, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. With these we shall be content. The first three petitions, obviously, focus on the supremacy of God. And as I've said several times, In this series on prayer, we must approach God with that holy reverence and awe of his majesty and glory. But once we do that, in contrast, we must see ourselves as unworthy in his sight, yet the object of his undeserved and infinite mercy. Again, keep that tension, that balance that he is God, we are not, we are his creatures, yet he has loved us and drawn us unto himself. So we have to keep the balance between disrespecting him in our prayers and desiring him to meet our needs in prayer. And that's an attention that sometimes we can get kind of mixed up. Once we do that, we should have a sense of contentment and peace. In in his institutes, Calvin once said, true and substantial wisdom principally consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So if we really have a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of yourself as a sinner redeemed by his grace, then your Wisdom will be definitely enhanced. Now, some might ask, why isn't the fourth petition in this prayer about forgiveness of sin? Isn't that more important than getting our daily bread? Well, first of all, the picture here given in the order of these petitions is, as we mentioned a little while ago, the supremacy of God and our total dependence upon him. We deserve nothing from God, even our daily bread. Yet he shows his condescension and love by supplying our needs. We're, taught up in, we're caught up in a society which is an, in an entitlement mindset. Our social welfare concept that every man or woman deserves a certain standard of living, even if they refuse to work or do anything productive, has led us to the precipice of financial ruin. But God's people, knowing of their unworthiness, can look to God, trust in his unfailing love, and demonstrate their total dependence upon him by asking him for their daily bread with a sense of confidence. We don't need tomorrow's bread today. This principle of uh, asking for things because we think we we deserve them, or not thinking in terms of day, not thinking in terms of asking daily. The reason for asking daily is we trust God to give us a greater sense of our direct dependence upon Him, and it should lead us to be thankful and content that He supplies our daily needs. We need to reject the status symbol mindset that is prevalent in our society and pursue con- confidence and contentment with God's provision. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. The Lord knows what our needs are. We can worry about food and clothing, but worry will not lead us to trust in God, will it? If we're given up to worry and anxiety, that's not going to help us to trust God. In fact, we're going to start reaching out for other things we're going to trust in. He knows what our needs are. Jesus said in Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, meeting your needs. God can certainly bless us with an abundance, or enough to last beyond one day, 
and he does that, I'm sure. But the principle behind this petition is a daily trust, a daily dependence, and a thankfulness to our gracious God. The next petition, as we'll see, will deal with forgiveness of sin. And the next petition we'll look at is the fifth petition. And I've entitled this particular section here, as we're coming to a close pretty quick, uh, the forgiveness and deliverance. Forgiveness and deliverance. So look at, let's look at the fifth petition. And we pray in the fifth, what do we pray in the fifth petition? In the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather encouraged to ask because by his grace, we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Okay, let me read that again. The fifth petition, which is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which, are, which we are the rather encouraged to ask because by his grace, we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Others. So, first of all, without question, we have a debt to pay to God. Okay, we shouldn't think we don't owe him anything. Okay, it isn't that we have some shortcomings or you know shortcomings to correct or faults to overcome. No, the Bible says that when we offend against the law of God, even on one point, we're all guilty. We're guilty of all points. James two ten. Without question, all of mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we're told in Romans three twenty three. The words of the first part of the petition, forgive us our debts, are an echo of David's much longer prayer of contrition in Psalm 51, beginning with these two verses. And they should be familiar to all of us. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. This petition is a reminder that our sins are our debts, and they're an obligation that remain, that remain until payment is made, and God is the one who whom we owe the debt, and he is a righteous judge. Unfortunately, today we're told by secular society that we don't need to feel guilty. I mean, it's not a big deal. It's a subjective thing based upon false standards. And if we just ignore the standards, we'll be fine. And that's what our society is coming to. Just ignore the standards, live how you want, and you'll be okay. And yet they could still pray the Lord's Prayer, mechanically thinking it's a good thing to pray. But they don't want to follow God's standards. We know from Scripture that when we sin against God's holy law, his unchanging and irrefutable standard, we're guilty, whether we feel like it or not. And we do have a penalty to pay. That's why we must cry out to God to forgive us our sin debts. And of course, if we trust in the finished work of Christ... For payment of our sins, we will be forgiven. For Christ's blood can cover all of our sins, as we know from 1 John 1.9. The latter part of this petition is often misinterpreted. It does not mean that our act of forgiving others comes before God's act of forgiving us. Nor does it mean that we will only be forgiven to the measure that we forgive others. If that were true, we'd be in big trouble because we can honestly say, I think, that we have not totally forgiven people who have injured us. We know that we can only learn to forgive correctly because we have been forgiven perfectly by God. Therefore, we ought to forgive as we have been forgiven. To quote from the Westminster Catechism here, the summary, our forgiveness of others should begin in a small way to reflect the boundless grace of God to us. That's how we should approach others. So let's quickly read the sixth petition and answer here. Sixth petition 
is, what do we pray for in the sixth petition? The sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support us and deliver us when we are tempted to sin. <clears throat> Here's some supportive scriptures. Psalm 19:13. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Also, Matthew 26:41. 26:41. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, some would question this petition because it seems to imply that it is God who tempts us to sin. We know from James 1.13 that God cannot be tempted from evil. James 1.13 is a quote. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. However, as the next verse in James 1 says, James 1.14, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And as we know from our study of the providence of God here, it's nothing, there's nothing that can happen to us in the world except by the sovereign will and determinate purpose of God. Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleased, that he did in heaven and in earth, in the seas, in all deep places. So if we fall into temptation, it can only be because God appointed it. In other words, he brings us into a situation in which Satan or our own sinful desires can tempt us. So why should we pray then, lead us not into temptation? Because it should, we should never take, take temptation lightly, never think of ourselves immune, no matter how old we are in the faith, nor immune to Satan's attacks, just because we are in Christ. In fact, the second half of the petition can actually be read in this way, deliver us from the evil one. Job was blameless and upright, one that feared God and shunned evil, we're told in Job 1.1, yet God allowed Satan to tempt him via multiple trials. Our Savior was not immune from Satan's attack when he was on earth, and should we expect not to be? It is certainly a mystery how the absolute, unchanging, sovereign God of the universe allows a place in his world, in his universe, for the exercise of evil. But he does. And we can only trust that he knows what he's doing. He is not tempting us. He is allowing situations to take place which, in a sense, test our faith and trust in him that we won't let our flesh yield to that temptation or to Satan's temptations. This the book says, This petition, then, is for weak sinners, even redeemed ones, who do not trust themselves and who want to win the victory that overcomes the world. Let me finish up here quickly. In conclusion, the last question and answer here in the book kind of sums it up, and it should be pretty obvious, but sometimes we overlook it. What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, teaches us to take our encouragement and prayer from God only, and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom and power and glory to him, and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, amen. Daniel 9, 18 through 19, Daniel says this, We do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God. Also, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 11 through 13. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and the earth is thine. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise 
thy glorious name. That's how our prayers really, in that sense, should end. Now, to be honest, that last phrase here, as we've just read, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, it doesn't appear in some manuscripts. And it's not repeated, for instance, in Jesus' example to the disciples in Luke 11. However, as you can see from the verses I just quoted, those words that are at the end of the Lord's Prayer here in chapter 6 express a truth that is perfectly in line with Scripture. Even if they aren't clearly a part of Scripture, and that's some question, they are a fitting conclusion to our study of this model prayer. Again, it's a model, not a command to pray this way, but it certainly gives us a biblical pattern that would be pleasing to our God, and I hope it is to you today. Let's close.